Welcome to another episode of Ed's Up, sponsored by the Southern Early Childhood Association. Ed's Up is a podcast all about children and those that care for them. Hosted by Dr. Melody Musgrove and Dr. Kathy Grace with the Graduate Center for the Study of Early Learning at the University of Mississippi. We are so pleased to have today with this is our guest on Ed's Up, Dr. Libby Doggett. I had the great pleasure of working with Dr. Doggett in D.C. We were both at the U.S. Department of Education together, so it's always a pleasure to reconnect with Dr. Doggett. She has spent the last 40 years improving early learning programs all throughout our country. She serves on a lot of state and national boards and volunteers on projects that are making a big difference across the nation. During the Obama administration, when Dr. Doggett and I worked together, she was leading the Race to the Top Early Learning Challenge and preschool development grants and was the liaison on early learning issues with the White House at the U.S. Department of Education. Prior to that time, um, Dr. Doggett worked to improve access and quality of pre-K and home visiting programs through the Pew Charitable Trust. And she has a Ph.D. from the University of Texas at Austin, which Austin is her home. Welcome to Ed's Up, Libby Doggett. Great. Well, thank you so much for including me in this, and I'm looking forward to a great conversation. I really enjoyed the days we worked together, Melody, so thank you for your service. Thank you for yours as well. We are kindred spirits. Uh, Libby has worked also with children with disabilities, which is, of course, my area, and uh, so we have always found ourselves agreeing on so many issues, and it's always a pleasure to catch up with Dr. Libby Doggett. So, Libby, you have such a distinguished background. You've done so much great work for young children all throughout our country. Tell us a little bit about what led you into working with young children. You know, we believe that everybody's childhood has an impact on who they are today. So tell us about what really led you into working in the field that you're in now. As I've had more time to reflect on my career, it's really been interesting because I came at it really serendipitously. It, this was not planned. In fact, my father and mother uh, sent me to college and expected me to do really well in college and marry really well. So I attempted to marry well, which I did. Certainly uh, did. But along the way, uh, I learned that I was really very, very interested in young children. And it came actually in the middle of my senior year when I was planning to go do student teaching in Spanish and French and realized, oh my gosh, I'm interested in very young children. What do I do? I had no idea how to get in, into the field. I didn't even know what the field looked like. It surprised me, and I still kind of go back and think, what is it in my childhood that led me in this direction? It must have been something, but I've always loved kids and babies, but even in, when I was young, I didn't, I didn't uh, babysit. So I got there somehow, and, uh, as you said, have made a lifetime uh, out of it, working, you know, at the state, local, and the national levels, and working in Head Start child care schools with kids with disabilities and those without. So I feel like I have a broad-based understanding of, of kids and the systems that serve them. Absolutely, and it must have been fate. Um, uh, like you, I did not plan to go into special education. I've always said I didn't choose it. It chose me. So for good reasons, but you have been involved in so many amazing different initiatives and projects and programs around the country. Are there any that kind of stand out in your mind as ones that have made the most difference? Well, it's 
it's always fun to uh, think about, you know, your successes and, and where you feel like you made an impact. First, I like to kind of think about, you know, how was it that we, that I had an impact and I kind of go back to the same old goal setting and uh, give an example because I share with you, as you noted, our special ed background. At one point I was head of the Ark of Texas, which was very powerful advocacy organization, but we also ran programs. We collected used clothing and had a major budget of grants and money we made. And when I was hired, I was told that they really wanted to redirect some of the money going to large state institutions to community-based services. That was a huge task. I mean, it was something that everybody had tried to do. No one had, had been able to do it, but that was kind of the goal the board set. And over a period of time, we actually were able to close down two of the large institutions and redirect some of that money. It still needs to happen. You know, we made some progress, but we never got the full way there. But it just was, to me, such a great example of how having a goal when you, when you have a job really makes a difference. And then another one was, was you mentioned when you introduced me that I worked on uh, Pre-K Now. And so when, we, uh, when I was given the task with just a few staff to uh, take this on, the goal that Pew set was to secure Pre-K high quality pre-k at that for every three and four year old across the country not even targeted but for every child i remember kind of sitting there with my staff at a strategic planning meeting thinking how in the world are we going to do this and you know is it even possible obviously we didn't succeed at getting pre-k for every three and four year old but by having that vision and that lofty goal we really were able to put in, in place steps to get a long way there. That's how I got to know uh, Kathy Grace, who, who's led the effort in Mississippi for so many years. So, you know, I think goal setting has been really helpful. And those two examples of really trying to direct more services for people with disabilities to community-based services where they can live more normal lives and we can support the families and the natural supports that are already there and then getting pre-k for three and four year olds hopefully through a diverse delivery system as you all have done in mississippi but really you know i think are two kind of tangible uh impacts that i'm very proud of libby it's so nice to visit with you and as you mentioned uh you and i met many years ago if with my work in mississippi and your support and trying to help us move forward with the, the pre-k initiatives and it took us a while but we're there we we have one of the best programs according to some of the research standards in the country so we're very proud of that i know now you're back in texas and you're working on state and local issues as you've already kind of told us about but where do you see some of the major differences that you're experiencing in your work at each level, from the state level to the local level, depending on uh, if there's any themes that run through those? You're a master at convening and getting people together. I saw that with the pre-K now work that you did. But I've also worked in Texas a lot when I was the executive director of the Southern Early Childhood Association. And I know that Texas is a big state and it's almost like four little states at different regions of the state uh, in terms of their needs and their concerns. So tell us a little bit about what you've been doing in Texas and how that could possibly 
give us some things to go on in Mississippi or Massachusetts or wherever people are listening from where they live. Well, Kathy, I really think you are a legend, and it was always my privilege to get to work with you because you've done so much good work, and not just in Mississippi, but across the country. So thank you. Well, you know, 10% of the nation's young children live in Texas. So if we can change the outcome for those kids in Texas, we really change the trajectory of our whole country and even the world. So we've really been targeted on looking at, you know, what can we do in this very red, conservative, you know, pick yourself up by your bootstraps state to change the trajectory. And many and many of our children, as in many of these other southern and, and kind of western states, are very poor children. So we have a task ahead of us. I think we've, we've, we make some headway in te- we've made some headway in Texas by actually doing a couple of things. One is getting a strong coalition together. We've got to have everybody working on the same page, in the same direction, and that's always hard. In a state as big as Texas, we have multiple advocacy groups. None of them are extremely well-funded, so they're always kind of struggling for funds. But they have come together in a beautiful way, and that's happened across the country as well in many other states. But I can't stress enough how important it is for everybody to come together. You know, we need everybody working together at the state level. So uh, it's been exciting to be a part of the Pritzker Initiative. They are focused on prenatal to three initiatives to help infants and toddlers. I know that they're funding a number of states, and I think they have gotten it right. They really have put great staff in place, and they're really focused on uh, doable uh, initiatives, but that will result in really important change. The other thing that I think that has made a difference and will make a bigger difference going forward in Texas is the business community. Uh, We have organized the business community in Austin under the brand of Early Matters. And we chose that brand because Dallas and Houston were using it. So now we have Early Matters Dallas, Early Matters Houston, Early Matters Greater Austin. And then more recently, we have Early Matters San Antonio. We have other cities that now want to organize their business community under the same brand. But it makes all the difference when you have uh, someone other than an advocate, a longtime advocate like me, come into the office and say, you know, I'm not here to talk about oil and gas. I'm really here to talk about our future, which is our children, and we need to do such and such. And so organizing the business community, I think, is is critically important. It, uh, it means for advocates giving up some of our control because it sh- we can't always set the agenda and business leaders may have a little bit different take on things, but I think in the long run, it will make a huge difference. In Texas, as in other states, it's critically important that we work at the local level. Of the 11 largest cities in the United States, four of them are in Texas. So we've got to work and through our city government as well. I actually think that if if we had a good study about funding from the feds, from the state, and at the local level, we'd find that the biggest deficit for infants and toddlers and our youngest kids is at the local level. Uh, Because we put money into schools and think nothing of it. I mean, we we, actually, we think everything of it. We, We would not fund our schools, yet we don't fund child care and so many other services at the local level like we should. 
So we've been working across uh, Texas to pull our cities together, not just with the business community, but uh, really more at the grassroots level and share ideas. Uh, you'd be amazed at all the great things that are happening in cities that don't get get uh, out in the limelight. So we've pulled our cities together uh, every other year. Unfortunately, this year we didn't get to, but to just share ideas and say, what are you doing around childcare? How are you uh, making your pre-K work better with uh, community-based settings? What are you doing about improving the workforce and compensation and uh, the issues that we all care about? So I think, you know, having a coordinated effort is critically important. Engaging those unexpected allies, particularly business leaders, is critically important. And then finally, you know, you've just got to work at all levels. You can't just do it at the state level or the federal level, but you've got to work at the local level as well. Well, I've got to ask this question, and I imagine you watch 60 Minutes uh, about the rural parts of Texas and how the COVID virus has really started to move more into the rural parts of the state. And this is beyond, of course, just the rural parts. This entire globe has been affected by this. But how do you see this impacting early care and education? Let's just say, what do you think this is going to look like 20 years from now? What is the early care and education system? None of us know. But obviously, this is going to be a tremendous challenge and opportunity in terms of just early care and education and maybe perhaps the elevation of the importance of this, given the business communities and others now are going to have to look at, hey, we are all connected because if the workers don't have childcare, they can't come back to work and so forth. But how do you envision all of this? I think it depends on what day you talk to me. <laughs> Some days <laughs> I'm really excited about the future and feel like we are going to be able to use this as an opportunity, as you mentioned. And other, other days I'm, I'm very depressed because I do see how much money is being put out there. Some of it used really well because to bulk, uh, you know, help our chalker system and our small businesses and some of it being misused. But let's, let's talk, well, let's, let's talk about the bad part, the, the bleak future first, and then maybe end on a high note. You know, I, I do worry because everything is connected and we tend not to think it's connected. But, you know, every time we have a tax cut or we, you know, do do a big spending bill like we have to do right now, it does mean that we're going to have less money in the future. And uh, that, you know, we've always had to scrimp and scrape to get money for children and now we're going to have to scrimp and scrape even more because there's going to be less funding. So how do we position childcare and early childhood and schools even as essential that they, we know they are and they've been designated as such and, and we're in a different position in terms of people understanding it. But when it comes to, you know, whose lobbyist is there and who's in charge and, and how they're making decisions, are we going to have, the power to make the case for what we need. And, you know, I think in that regard, Kathy, you alluded to, and it's so important, I think we all want to go forward. We don't want to go backwards. We don't want to go back to the same system we had, which we know had many flaws. So when my optimistic days, I'm like, yes, we're going to seize this challenge and, uh, you know, view this as an opportunity to come back in a new way. And I think 
that's the fun part of, of right now is, is kind of thinking about, you know, how can we do that and what does it look like? Uh, obviously, child care is now an essential part of the workforce. We know that schools and teachers now are appreciated in a totally new way. Uh, we keep our uh, two grandchildren for three hours every afternoon and do some homeschooling and then just do some fun stuff. But, you know, everybody's doing that. And we're all on Zoom calls where you hear children laughing in the background or crying in the background, or you see them get on and they they give you a high five or a, a wave. But we all know that the teachers and our education system is is critical. And how can we move forward and make sure that that's strong? Because that's a, a critically important part of our early childhood system and our children's system. You know, hopefully we can all get together and start that visioning now about what can we use from this new virus to take us forward instead of backwards? And how can we envision a new system that is better than the old system, more equitable, reaches more families, is a better family support, and isn't always on kind of the edge of collapse? Well, I think that's a very good point because this edge of collapse is we just accept that is the way it has to be, which in fact, it doesn't have to be that way. And uh, having the business people at the table and having the voices of those individuals who may not have been there previously, hopefully that will bring about some new changes and also some better changes uh, for where this country is going. Many people are not aware of the role that you played in pre-K, and you've been very modest about that. But really, that has changed the, in my opinion, it has changed the educational system in this country. And it has also brought about, I think, a higher level of quality because of what was expected of the pre-K programs that were, as you said, in Mississippi and other states, particularly in the collaboratives, where there were certain levels of standards that you had to meet if you were going to participate. So I, I do want, again, to underscore that your leadership and your work in that, I think, has made a tremendous difference in the system of educating young children in the country. So I didn't want you to get off the hook without me at least being able to, again, highlight how important this is going to be for children that aren't even born yet. We need to always talk about a pre-K to 12 system or a cradle to a career you know, and not, it is a K-12. And anytime anybody says K-12, I'm just like, I thought we'd gone beyond that. In fact, when Melanie and I were at the, with the Obama administration, we did change that lexicon at the Department of Education. And everybody was talking about early childhood education. It was a good example of how important leadership is. And you all have both provided incredible leadership in your states and at the national level. We just need more leaders who are willing to to step up and uh, help us make these changes. Well, and speaking of leaders, as Libby said earlier, she and I both married very well. Uh, Libby's husband is Congressman Lloyd Doggett in the U.S. Congress. So thanks to him also for the great leadership that he provides. Again, it's been our great pleasure to have Dr. Libby Doggett with us here on Ed's Up today. Thank you for your time, Libby. Thank you all for including me. Today's Lit Bit is a poem by Abby Jenkins about her best friend, and it's her dog. Many of us love, love our dogs, and so consider the dog to be the best friend. And this is from familyfriendpoems.com. My best friend. 
black and white, thick and furry, fast as the wind, always in a hurry. Couple of spots, rub my ears, always comes when his name he hears. Loves his ball, if it's his favorite thing. What's most fun for him? Everything. Great big tongue that licks my face. He has a crate, his very own space. Big brown eyes like moon pies. He's my friend till the very end. That's My Best Friend by Abby Jenkins from FamilyFriendPoems.com. Thank you for joining us today for Ed's Up. We're always interested in stories about children and those who care for them. If you'd like to share your story, email us at edsup at oldmiss.edu. Until next time, bye-bye. Ed's Up is a production of the Graduate Center for the Study of Early Learning at the University of Mississippi. The views and opinions of podcast participants are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of the university, its employees, or any affiliated entity.